Welcome to the latest edition of the Know the News podcast, brought to you by the newsroom of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Hello, I'm Rusty Turner, and I'm your host today, and we've got a treat for you. Uh, You'll get to meet Jim Evans. He's the Regional Director of Development for a Bentonville-based nonprofit called LifeWater International, which provides sustainable, clean water sources for impoverished communities in Africa and Asia and around the world. Jim will be the subject of Sunday's Northwest Arkansas Profile, in the, in the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and that's written by April Wallace. Um, I'm pleased to have both April and Jim joining me today to talk about that story and the amazing work LifeWater is doing around the world. So thanks for being here, April. Thank you. And Jim, thank, thank you for spending some time with us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. All right. So full disclosure, uh, Jim gave a program at my Civic Club a few weeks ago, the Downtown Rotary Club in Rogers, uh, and I was really impressed with the presentation about LifeWater. And I suggested to April that uh, the newspaper do a profile on Jim in hopes of shining more light on the good work that LifeWater does. So, uh, Jim, I'll start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization, how it got started, and how it goes about the business of, of fulfilling its mission? Absolutely. Um, Started in San Luis Obispo, California, and we are celebrating our 45th anniversary this year. So it started officially in 1977. Um, The gentleman that started it, Bill Ash, he was a third generation water pump guy. And uh, his church had gone on to a a short term mission trip down in Mexico. And um, he was relatively new in his faith at the time. And while he was down there, he just kept thinking to himself that these people don't have a problem in the world that water wouldn't fix. And so he built them a windmill and hooked up a water pump to it. And lo and behold, that's kind of how the the idea had its early start. Um, It certainly evolved over the 45 years, but that was the initial um, start of the of life water was that desire to have a very practical approach in living out their faith through meeting other people's needs and that's how that started and 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 you know then obviously one of the primary human needs uh for for everyone is water clean safe drinkable water that's not going to make you sick and uh, I know you've got some statistics that that it's that are pretty astounding about the number of people who live in the world who don't have access to clean, safe drinking water. Well, and that's true. And the poverty crisis, and, and I'll call it the poverty, water, and sanitation crisis, is a complex issue. There is no silver bullet that's going to solve it. However, if you look at the building block, we have approximately 771 million people that do not have access to clean water. And what we mean by that, when we say access, you know, it's not like our image conjures up the thought of, you know, going in there, turning on the tap water and and getting your water. Well, when we use that term, 771 million do not have access, that means they don't have clean water within a 30-minute walk of their home. And in some of these areas, I know that in Tanzania, uh, in some of the areas in Tanzania, the average distance that someone would have to walk to get to water is 90 minutes. And in many of those cases, that water really isn't suitable for drinking. It's not protected. It's it's contaminated. Um, it might be a river, pond, or maybe a uh, uh, natural spring that feeds up that everything, you know, the animals and everybody in the area is using that same water source. 
So it is a dire situation in some of these areas. So when LifeWater comes in, and this is the part that drew me to LifeWater, they're very holistic in their approach. They realize the problem is a complex one. So we want to start with education, hygiene education. And then from there, we want to look at the sanitation uh, availability throughout that village or region. Do these homes have latrines? Do they have, uh, are they practicing open defecation? There's your number one problem in these areas is that most of these folks are, are practicing open defecation. So we have some priorities in line before you get to the clean water source and before you can, you know, build a well, so to speak, you want to be sure that those behaviors will sustain that well over the long term. So that's why LifeWater takes a very holistic approach uh, to solving the problem. We want to address the hygiene issue. We want to address the sanitation issue. And then, of course, we want to provide access to safe water. So that sounds like that's a much longer process than just parachuting into a village and building a well and a few little trains. And, <laughs> you and, use and, a great and, analogy. Parachuting so, in is, yeah. is very appropriate. Yeah. In the early 2000s, and, and that was really kind of the, the approach. It was almost like a relief effort. You know, if you go dig as many wells as possible, then that will help folks. Well, the, the, the mentality started shifting. And uh, in 2015, LifeWater implemented what they call the vision of a healthy village, which took on a, a longer term outlook. Um, we are primarily focused on sustainability in our solutions. So when we go into a region, it's a three-year commitment, and it's a true partnership on the part of the village and on LifeWater. They're going to be working alongside of us, and we hire locally. So of our 177 employees, only 30 of those are in the U.S. The rest of them work locally in the countries where we serve. And that partnership is a three-year process of building out this infrastructure of sanitation, hygiene, education, and clean water. After that three years, uh, we should have a you know certified healthy village, certified by the local governments, recognize that they are free from open defecation. They have sanitation facilities to sustain this long-term. They take ownership of the well. They know how to maintain it, how to repair it. After that, we have five years of continued monitoring for water quality and hygiene behaviors. So it really is a long-term commitment once we go into a region. And and how six, and you said this, this um, vision of a healthy village uh, process started in 2015. How successful have you been in keeping those, uh, keeping those behaviors and keeping those, uh, keeping the, those water sources clean uh, where you've been? In, in every region we serve, and today we are in Ethiopia, Tanzania, Uganda, and Cambodia. Um, I can say it will vary a little bit depending upon the region, but we are in the mid to high 90th percentile for our sustainability. Um, in Uganda, for example, if you want to compare that to an industry, I know that um, anywhere, and again, depending on the region, anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of the wells that are drilled will be broken within three years. And so when we drill a well, we got a 95 percent or higher probability that it will be sustained long term. Mm -hmm. And and so you know, the, your work then with that kind of success rate, you're, you're affecting hundreds and hundreds of people who, who you know, <laughs> um, uh, who, whose lives are significantly changed by the, this, this access, close access to clean water. 
Um, there's exactly. A, and yeah. your point's well taken because it's our, our approach might be a little bit more investment on the front end. I think if we if we were to break down our average program cost per person, it comes out to sixty five dollars per person. But once that trajectory of that life is changed, it's tr it's forever changed. Um, I can refer to like a child, uh, a child under the age of five. Uh, well, the statistic from the World Health Organization says every two minutes, a child under the age of five will die from a waterborne illness. Well, if we can intervene in that and prevent that child from dying simply by providing hygiene, sanitation and education uh, to the family and safe water, now that child gets an education. Now that child can affect that community. And the World Health Organization provides a statistic that I enjoy that says for every dollar invested in water and uh, sanitation hygiene education, you see a return anywhere from five to $28 in a community. And that's truly exciting. Yeah. Uh, and there's a story that April relates in her, her profile that's coming Sunday. Uh, and I know you've, you told you told similar uh, gave us gave us some similar information at, at my civic club meeting. But uh, talk a little bit about how the village the, the dynamic in the village changes when when uh, a family doesn't have to spend an hour hour and a half to three hours a day walking back and forth uh, from a, from an unclean water source. What what happens to in the village uh, w once that clean water is is accessible and easily easily uh, and 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 gotten to easily. Yes, there's there's a couple quick stories that come to mind. One is a gentleman. He was an elder in the village. The village was still in that kind of cleaning up process. They were still learning new behaviors. Some of the homes had already built other trains. Other homes were still having you know to do so, uh, but they had learned how to store water better. They were they were limiting their bathroom behaviors to you know uh, two latrines, and it was really cleaned up. And they asked him. They said, "What's one of the things that you've noticed?" And he said, without question, one of the early things that he noticed was the flies were gone. Hmm. And, and we don't really think about that here. But here in that village, just by stopping the open defecation, just by cleaning up the compound from the, the pet and animal feces around the area, the flies were gone. And that was a big deal to them. Another one was a lady that had um, some children, and she was 55 years old, single mother of four kids, and she said as she would go and, and, you know, take her long trips to get water and come back, you can imagine that as you're doing this, you know that the water you're bringing back is going to make your kids sick. Chronic uh, diarrhea and stomach cramps is, is, is just part of normal. Well, for the first time in her life, she said, now keep in mind, she's 55 years old. She said, for the first time in my life, I can think about tomorrow. And that really struck me that this lady has lived 55 years of her life, really not knowing how to get to the end of the day. But because now she has clean water and the kids are healthy enough to stay in school, she has time enough in her day to think about and plan for tomorrow. And that's what we see in these villages. It's capacity, both in time and in health. It's savings from money for Fewer trips to the doctor, fewer days missed at work, fewer days missed at school. It just has a, a exponential compounding factor is once that ripple starts going out. Yeah. Um, April, I want to I want to shift gears and and ask you to, to to comment a little bit. How 
talk a little bit about how you got to know Jim and how you got you've got several voices of other people in your story talking about Lifewater and and about Jim as 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 the local uh, one of the local representatives of. Tell us a little bit about how you reported this story and and what you found. Um, I met Jim at Lifewater International's headquarters in Bentonville, where he was kind enough to tell me more about himself and the organization. Um, he went into lots of detail about their practices and why they have those in place specifically. Um, you know, what sets them apart from other similar organizations to kind of ensure the success of these these wells and latrines and, and things in and, and faraway communities. And um, so we just sat and visited and he told me about his background, which includes um, working in in Hollywood and working in the corporate sector and the things that happened in his life that caused a change and made him want to shift his work to something that would reflect his true values and have a lot of meaning for him. So after that meeting, I was um, put in touch with a number of people who know him really well including um, his wife, Sarah, of more than 20 years. And so, Jim, I have to interject here. Did that make you nervous that, that Echo was interviewing your wife for 20 years? It still makes me nervous. <laughs> I haven't read the article yet. I'm terrified. Uh, it, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> she just, my wife just looks at me like, yeah, you're in for it. And yeah. then, you know, it just leaves me hanging like that. So, so. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty nervous. All right. I'm sorry. I probably didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. So. Well, I, I do think they provide a, a unique perspective when you talk to a spouse. Yeah. Um, but I did speak with her and with um, former colleagues, as well as um, some of his colleagues at LifeWater, and even his uh, longtime buddy from growing up in Oklahoma. Yeah. So they each had a little something different that kind of contributed to the overall picture of Jim. So Jim, I was interested when when I met you at at at, at Rotary, and then again when I was reading April's story um, uh, yesterday that um, um, you're I, I'm very interested in in your in your life's journey to get where you are. You've you've had uh, your working life is uh, pretty varied. So, uh, I, uh, I, I, I don't want to focus entirely on that, but I think our, our listeners might, uh, might, might enjoy hearing you talk a little bit about some of the different things you've done professionally before you landed at LifeWater. Well, sure. Um, I have been blessed to be a bit of a chameleon, I suppose. Um, growing up in Oklahoma City, I truly thought I'd be in the ministry. I was licensed to the ministry at a young age, at 17 and was uh, fully intended to go to the traditional seminarial route and was at Oklahoma Baptist University. When uh, I met and married uh, my first wife then, and it was about, I married junior year, and by the time I was graduating, we were going through divorce. And so I became very embittered against the church and turned in my license and left the ministry and, and ended up uh, getting my master's in technical theater production. Theater had always been a, a joy of mine growing up, and it was a high school drama teacher that really invested and poured into my life. So the theater became my, uh, my first career, and uh, I was involved in film, television, and theater production, and uh, eventually would end up in Los Angeles, and I was working on an old CBS 
uh, show at the time called Touched by an Angel when I met a pastor out there by the name of Jack Hayford. And I like to credit Jack Hayford and another lady out there by the name of Rose Stone for literally just kind of becoming those influences in my life that just loved me back into the church. And faith became a very important part of my life. And I knew from that point on, any work I did, whether it was Hollywood or whatever, uh, from a missional perspective. And when we uh, we moved a lot from Los Angeles, I, I met and married my current wife, Sarah, in the year 2000. And uh, our daughter came along in 2003, and we wanted to leave L.A. and raise her near family who lived just outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So we moved to the area, had completely no clue what I would do. And I had the great joy of running into and getting to know uh, Patrick Sparra and Brad Jones, who founded New Creature. And uh, they gave me a shot and took me on board as VP of advertising and marketing in the early days. And we got to launch a lot of fun programs in Walmart for brands like Hasbro and others that really kind of got my career launched in Northwest Arkansas. And so we did a lot of uh, promotional display work and shareholder events and you name it. And uh, those were the early days. And in 2008, um, the economy tanked and then Walmart made a left turn. And you know what happens when that, you know, Walmart makes a quick left turn. Sometimes other companies don't make it. And so I was laid off in 2008 and a gentleman took me to Jinja, Uganda to video document the story of an orphanage there. And I came back from that experience, just completely um, transformed the priorities of my life. And um, I have been in profit ever since. I had absolutely the best uh, training possible through uh, John Brown University, who hired me as a uh, development officer. And uh, just really appreciate them for what they did for me and getting me started in this industry. I absolutely love it. Uh, seeing people willing to sacrifice of themselves for somebody else that they may never meet is just really rewarding to me. And um, they put me on the path to the nonprofit sector. So I've been a nonprofit since 2008. Okay. And uh, you mentioned that LifeWater, uh, bringing it back to, to where we are today, LifeWater started in California, but it's now it's based in Bentonville. Is that right? That's correct. Um, it went through kind of a transformation where we had and when COVID hit, uh, at that same approximate same time, they also had a transition in leadership. And David Levan took the helm as the new CEO. He had been a board member for a number of years. I knew of David's reputation here from his Walmart days and through his connections at John Brown University. That's where I got to kind of know a bit about him. Had tremendous respect for him and his reputation. And we were talking during COVID um, about how our differing organizations were handling some of the challenges that it was throwing us. And he said they were in the midst of transition and were considering opening an office here in Bentonville. At the time, I didn't know that was going to be the, the new U.S. hub, but I was extremely interested in getting involved. And I told him, I said, well, if you do, let me know, because I... I'm certainly not moving to California, but I would be very interested if you had an office here. And so in October of 2020, I joined LifeWater to help them, what I thought would be open an office here. Uh, what has transpired since that time has been incredible. The organization moved its thinking from 
what I would call a U.S.-based ministry doing work overseas, and we're thinking more like a global company. So we have a hub here in Bentonville, Arkansas, and we have a hub in Addis, Ethiopia. And the decision-making, the, the autonomy, I guess you would call it, of providing our country directors uh, more authority and decision-making and then giving them a voice into the decision-making process has really been transforming the company from the inside out. Um, things are moving quicker. There's a lot more uh, collaboration going on between the countries and their solutions. Uh, we've seen engineering solutions more collaborative. So it's really an exciting time right now as the organization begins to evolve into this next phase where it feels really feels like a global entity. So, April, I know you've written, um, you know, your job is to write about uh, uh, people who are doing good work, and, and I know you've written about, about a lot about nonprofits. Is there, is there anything unique or special that you noticed about LifeWater? Uh, what makes it, uh, what makes it a, um, uh, an organization that's, uh, that's, that's worth anyone's attention? Well, um, mostly it's a long-term commitment in these communities. I think that's what really stands out. Um, like you said, they shifted that way um, six years ago to provide more support long-term and make sure that, um, you know, they can sustain the whales themselves. They have new behaviors and how that just really impacts the day-to-day -day life that everybody in the community has. Um, it was interesting to me that because of LifeWater's work, um, schools are just packed now with children and jobs spring up and businesses are created. And, you know, like you said, they can stop worrying about something as fundamental as, you know, when will my kids feel well again? When mm. can we think about something else? Um, so I think that touches a lot of people to know that it is so fundamental yeah. what they do. Yeah, I I found it interesting, Jim. Your comments, both at Rotary and in and in April's story about um, the 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 improved sanitation practices um, was especially helpful for keeping young girls in school. Um, it's not something you would normally think about, right? Um, and the number one reason girls drop out of school, and, and many of the, and I'll use my Uga Uganda as one of my examples. Um, we had a. Uh, in, in each of our program regions, we do a baseline report. We work for three years, and then we do an inline report. Um, in our inline report, we found that by building a school latrine, now this is a cinder block latrine block house that has a boys' room, a girls' room, and a handicapped access room. Um, in the girls' room is a changing station and a wash station. The number one reason girls were dropping out of school was because of feminine hygiene. They don't have the facilities. They don't have the, the materials. And with the social stigma and embarrassment, it was just easier to stay home with mom for a little while each month. Well, as that young lady falls further and further behind, it just becomes easier to stay at home and help mom. Well, by building the facility and providing them the materials, the education, and the, uh, and the dignified, safe place, well, we saw girls staying in school increase by over 18% within the first year the building was completed. Um, in some schools we've seen in Ethiopia, for example, 
an average school attendance in one school went from an average of 100 to 125 to well over 600 students in average attendance. These latrine cinder block buildings are game changers when it comes to the health and vitality of a community. Um, we want healthy schools with the active school clubs, meaning we literally form wash clubs. These kids are learning their wash hygiene. They're, they're taking this message back home to their mom and dad. So even if they're not in a village that we're currently working in, we're getting the message out and the education out through the kids. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Well, I'm sure we have listeners who are out there wondering, well, how can I get involved? How can I help? So, Jim, here's here's your chance. What's what's the pitch? How can someone uh, get involved? In, get involved. Give me a in call. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would I'd say definitely go online and, and look at LifeWater.org. It is a great way to get familiar really quick with who we are and how we operate. Uh, I do like our website. It gives a great deal of information. You can take some really deep dives. And I will also say just reach out at info at lifewater.org. We certainly can provide information. Um, If you or your company, your church, Rotary Group, whatever, would like me to come out and do presentations and educations, I want to make myself available for that as well. We are uh, getting known here in the northwest Arkansas area. And so I am more than happy to go sit over a cup of coffee or lunch and, and visit at Link. Well, I, uh, I, I, really hope, uh, I really hope some folks reach out and, 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 and look for a way to connect uh, because this, is, this to me, is a, is a great organization doing great work. And uh, I'll also remind folks that if you want some more information, April Wallace's profile of Jim will appear in Sunday's edition of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette on the, on the Northwest Arkansas Profiles page. And uh, you can get that, uh, you can get a print copy of that uh, uh, in, in local stores, grocery stores, convenience stores. You can also see it online at our, on our website at nwaonline.com and on our, our smartphone and tablet apps uh, uh, in our replica edition. So, April, anything else before we go you'd like to, you'd like to add? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. All Thank right. You. Jim, anything, anything you'd like to, to, to add? Well, I guess the only thing I could add is if you want to shoot me an email, jevans at lifewater.org is my email address. And uh, you can contact me that way directly if you like. I just want to thank you all. Thank you all for the opportunity to tell our story. Um, What Northwest Arkansas has done for us already has been extraordinary. So I do look forward to the days ahead. Um, Great things are happening and we have much to be thankful for. Well, Jim, thank you so much for spending some time with us, and thank you too, April. I really appreciate it, and uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to find out what the future holds for LifeWater. Thank you both. Thank you. There's more outstanding content coming your way in this weekend's edition of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Arkansas switched to nonpartisan elections for judges and prosecutors more than 20 years ago in an attempt to take politics out of the legal system. But has that worked? Ron Wood will take a close look at that in a story on Sunday. Hikers and bikers beware, a portion of the Razorback Greenway will be relocated due to the expansion of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. Mike Jones will tell us how things will change. After two years of only conducting jury trials in person, court proceedings in Benton County are coming back to the courtrooms. Tracy Neal has the details. You can check out Janelle Jessen's story about a University of Arkansas regional science fair 
designed to encourage junior high and middle school students to pursue careers in science, technology, and math education. The City of Fayetteville will reprioritize projects to be funded by a 2018 bond issue because construction estimates have nearly doubled. Stacy Ryburn has that story. Monica Brick will tell us all about the opening of the University of Arkansas at Fort Smith's Peak Innovation Center, which will provide college-level courses to area high school students. And Thomas Sassente will update us on the development of a 911 center in Crawford County. Our subscribers will have access to all of this content and much, much more at our website, nwaonline.com. You can also get it on our tablet and smartphone apps in our replica editions. And if you're not a subscriber and want to stay informed, just click on the subscribe button on our website or call us at 479-684-5509. Again, 479-684-5509. If you like the None of the News podcast, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button on your device. We're here every Friday afternoon with a new edition. And you can also check out our other podcasts and subscribe to them as well. We'll be back next week with a new edition of Know the News. I'm Rusty Turner, your host, saying I'll talk to you again next week.